What does it take to really connect with someone in a meaningful way? Over the past three decades, American friendship groups have gotten smaller and smaller. Today, 10% of women and 15% of men have no close friendships at all. You know, you look up and, oh my gosh, I've been on the phone for an hour, just scrolling and looking at things and hoping something's interesting. And then I, I, I fall into that pattern, but I don't like it. I don't like doing it, but I do it anyway. You know, I remember a young cousin of mine, uh, by the time she was like eight years old, would have emotional breakdowns. Uh, she'd get on her parents' account and post something and she'd get a certain number of likes. Her self-image, self-awareness was 100% tied to what people thought of her and, and sort of the social media platforms taught her to go that direction. Social media claims to be the solution to our need to connect to each other. But studies show that people that spend more time on social media report being more lonely and isolated than others. The younger you are, the greater this trend proves to be true. You know, and just having that like, I'm in my own bubble. There's a physical interaction that's missing on social media. I might share something that I think is being vulnerable and I get like no reaction back. That I wasted my, my summer or I wasted my year because we don't actually match up to these images that somebody else posted online. To understand what is the dilemma, what has changed so slowly in our culture that now makes it hard to make friends. Well, good morning. I know you want to give this team a hand for uh, just the morning, the creativity. Thank you, guys. Well, good to see you here at Crossroads today. If you are new with us, welcome. Uh, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And as you see, we are starting a brand new series called The Friendship Dilemma. Now, for most of us, I think when we were kids, uh, kind of growing up, friendship just kind of happened, didn't it? Like, we didn't have to think that hard about making friends or becoming friends. We would just, like, run as hard as we could to the playground to play tag. Or we would join a sports team or an after-club team. Or we would hop on our bikes and cruise the neighborhood sidewalks, you know, joining whoever else was, was out in the neighborhood that day. Or my favorite, maybe you remember this, of sitting at home and hearing the uh, circus music outside and barreling out of our homes to join with the mobs as we, you know, ran around and chased the ice cream truck around the neighborhood. Anybody memories of those? Yeah, yeah, awesome, all of us, yeah. When my mom uh, would ask at the end of the day to kind of, for the details of my day, I would refer to this like random collection of kids as my friends. And honestly, you know, they probably were. I mean, they liked what I liked, they lived where I lived, they did the things that I did. We were all kind of like moving in the same kid orbit and that was enough to be my, to be my friend. And then we kind of grow, right? We end up in middle school, which we just all kind of survive. And then we get to high school where we find our people. But I would say that for most of us, that once we got into college, that was like the jackpot of friendships. It was a lot like our childhood friendships when community just kind of happened, but it also came with this, this newfound freedom and opportunity and diversity and the friends that we met. And honestly, it made a lot of sense, right? The kind of the jackpot of friendship happening in college because when you arrive at college, you're, you're all on an equal playing field, aren't we? That we all entered in as new students. We all had, you know, the same questions about life and about our careers and about future and relationships and, and dreams. 
And, and we kind of all just moved forward in this, in this idea of a friendship. And then we became adults. And adulthood does a number on our friendships, doesn't it? Like suddenly one day we wake up and we realize that no longer are we all on the same playing field. That some graduated and started their careers, others went on to graduate school. Some got married, others remained single. Right? Some were picking out curtains for their new house. Others were moving back home with mom and dad. And suddenly we have this like, realization that as we transition into a life as an adult, that for most of us kind of tilted our equilibrium in a way that we weren't quite prepared for. That suddenly we were finding new jobs, learning new jobs, trying to figure out what it meant to be single, trying to figure out what it meant to be married, figuring out what it tried to meant to be a parent. I mean, I remember the first time the nurse placed my oldest child, Theo, in my arms, and I thought, what in the world has happened here? <laughs> like, this has to be a cosmic joke that God is entrusting a human to me, you know? And all of these things, all of these things as adults, they take our prime energy, they take, you know, all of our focus, they, they take our, our dedication and our efforts, and we look at friendship and we go, for real, like, who has time for that? The things that we, you know, the time that we once enjoyed that would, you know, help us make friends or deepen our relationships when it came to our friends evaporates into, well, it evaporates into work and diapers, doesn't it? And we think to ourselves as, as adults in that stage of our lives, we think that we'll just put, like, friendships on the back burner. You know, we'll just, we'll just take a break from our friends for a season. And, and you know, one day in the, near, in the, you know, in the future, we'll, we'll jump back into friendship. And it'll be like riding a bike. You know, just the magic of, of being able to connect. Like when we were kids, we'll, we'll just magically appear. And yet what most of us come to realize is that the confidence and the ability that we had as kids to make friends, somewhere it quickly just erodes. And somehow, somewhere, friendship becomes a struggle, doesn't it? And the reality is, is that's not just something we feel. It's something that researchers are starting to pay attention to. Uh, in fact, I'm just going to like ask a question just for you to kind of put in your, in your mental mind. I want you to answer this question. How many good friends do you have in your life today? Just take a moment and just kind of mentally just work through, just start naming them and, and putting them in your mind. How many good friends do you have in your life today? All right, here's the second question. Do you have more or less today than you had 10 years ago? A recent study confirms what you might already suspect, and that is many more of us have fewer good friends today than we once did. In fact, in 1990, just 3% of all adult Americans reported having no close friends. 30 years later, that number has more than quadrupled to just over 13% of adults say that they have no close friends. In 1990, one-third of people said that they had 10 close friends or more. Uh, today, that number has plummeted all the way to only 10% say that they have that many close friends. In fact, if you go deeper into the statistics, 90% of all Americans cannot name a friend for each one of their fingers on their hands. The conclusion of this study is unsettling, that despite the tidal wave, despite the tidal wave of, of connection and communication that we have with one another, we're getting lonely. 
that this tidal wave is of, of new ways to connect and to communicate with one another. And the reality is, is that we are all getting lonelier. At the same time, other studies begin to surface showing the effects of chronic loneliness. One of the studies show that chronic loneliness is more dangerous to your health than, listen to this, chronic loneliness is more dangerous to your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Let me put it another way. It is better for you to smoke a pack of cigarette a week with your friends than it is to not smoke and to continue in the chronic loneliness that most of our culture experiences. That we are in a time that researchers are calling an epidemic of loneliness. In 2016, 2017, something happened that was unique in the U.S. culture that not, had not happened in more than 60 years. And that is in 2016, researchers and the medical community started to notice that there was a decrease in the average lifespan of Americans. That when it came to America, we were actually, our life expectancy was actually lowering. Well, of course, this got the attention of the medical society. They started doing research. And what they found is, is that we Americans are not dying more of cancer or pandemics or anything like that, that ultimately overtakes our body, that we're ultimately dying of what science calls the death of despair. We're not dying because our bodies are killing us. We're dying because our souls are lonely. The truth is, is that we are experiencing a friendship dilemma in our culture. That as individualism increases, social bonds decrease. As we replace flesh and blood relationships with digital illusions of the same, we walk a dangerous path that is literally, listen, it is literally killing us. This series is about how friendship matters. That over the next five weeks, we're going to walk together and we're going to explore the issues of relationship and friendship. We're going to talk openly about those issues. And in doing so, we're going to get to the point where we understand that the relationship that you have, the friendships that you have, will either make or break you. And so just to give you a snapshot of where we're going over these next five weeks, so you kind of have a, you know, a compass of where we're heading, today we're going to talk about the foundation of friendship. I'm going to do my very best to you to convince you that friendship matters and why it's worth the fight. In week two, we're going to talk about digital friends and how social media has ultimately impacted our relationships. And just kind of a newsflash, it's not neutral. There has been an effect on our relationship. Week three, brothers in arms or, or brothers in the trenches, I should say. And maybe the best way to describe that is when it comes to the Lord of the Rings, we all know that Frodo made it to Mordor to cast the ring right into the lava, but he would have never made it without Sam. Week four, if you have relationships in your life that are difficult, unhealthy, you would even call toxic. How are we to handle those as believers? What does it look like to handle those relationships? We're going to do that in a sermon called Unfriended. And then we're going to wrap all this up by talking about the friend that ultimately we all need. That's the roadmap of where we're going for the next five weeks. And today, as we set the foundation of friendship, I want to do so by helping us answer this question. Why is it that when it comes to friendships, why are those friendships so vital to our lives? Why is friendship so important to our existence? If all the research in our culture right now is true, and that the large majority of our culture is dying because of lonely souls, that lonely souls is what's killing us, then this has to be the question, right? And we need the answer to this. Why is it that relationships are so important? Why is it that they are so vital to our existence 
as humans? Well, in order to answer that question, I want to take you to the famous creation account in Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. One of the most interesting things that you'll notice when we walk through the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 is that as God begins to create, whether that be the stars and the moons or the land or light out of darkness or the livestock or the fish, that as God creates, what we have over and over again in Genesis chapter 1 is he created, he created, he created, he created. Now, I imagine that for most of us, that when we think of the creation accounts, we see it a bit like the beginning of Fantasia. You remember the beginning of of Walt Disney's famous movie, Fantasia, where you have this guy, right, white hair, bearded, and he's standing there in the darkness and he's swinging his arms like this, and all of a sudden, light begins to fill the darkness and, and color begins to sprout. And as he's moving his arms, you know, movement and life begins to take place. That for most of us, That's our picture of creation. It's like this artist who's sitting before this blank canvas and he begins to paint and draw and color and and all of a sudden life begins on the campus. Honestly speaking, that's the way that I view creation. That's the way I picture it. And I imagine that for most of us, that's the way you view creation too. If that's you, do me a favor and lose that. Just, Just get rid of that because when it comes to creation, particularly of humanity, The pronoun changes. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Moses writes these words to us. It says, then God said, let us. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over all the livestock, and all the earth, and over all the creepy things, creeping things, not creepy, creeping things that creep on the earth that might be creepy. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created him. Did you notice that as we get to this part of the creation account, it's not my, but our. It's not he, but we. Let us create man in our image. What does this mean for us? What is being communicated here for us? See, for some of you who maybe have been a part of church or grew up in Sunday school, you would raise your hand and go, ooh, I know, no, no, I know. Matt, this is on the first page of scripture, the biblical understanding, the biblical teaching of our Christian theology of Trinity where God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but he's one entity, and and we call this the Trinity. If you said that, you are exactly right. But it also says more. It says particularly that one God began to create humanity when he created us, his plurality was brought out. St. Augustine said it this way, that the Trinity is the only version of God where personal relationship is at the core. You go to the gods of the East and you find largely the majority of those gods are impersonal. You go to the gods of the West and you find a multiplicity of gods. But as you open up the pages of the scripture, only there are you introduced to a God where relationship, where personal relationship is at the core, is at the core. 
where a personal relationship is, is existing for all of eternity, that, that God has been a community of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, delighting in each other, loving each other, communicating with each other. In all other faith systems of the world, relationship comes later. In all other belief systems, love comes later. In all other world systems, ultimate like relationship ultimately comes as a secondary outcome in life. Only in the Bible, only in the scriptures are we introduced to a God where community is at the Godhead's core, where, where relationship is core, where relationship is life. In fact, when we turn in the scriptures to the other creation account in scripture, I don't know if you know that there's a second one. We find it in Proverbs chapter eight, and King Solomon writes these words, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him. Like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Hebrew scholars will tell you that that word delight is the word that is used for play to frolic, to dance. It's to dance. When we have, what we have in creation is not what you thought. It's not what you and I picture, this idea of a white-headed, bearded man swinging his arms with creation coming into place. That's not the picture that the Bible gives us at all. The picture of creation is this communal event of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit enjoying each other, laughing, playing, frolicking. They're dancing together. And out of this vibrant relationship, it is good, it is good, it is good. You and I were created. You and I were made. See, the reality is, is that when you put a rock next to a candle, that rock does not reflect the candle, does it? It's just a rock. It's just a rock that sits next to a candle, but you take a candle and you put it in front of a mirror. All of a sudden, the mirror is overcome with the light and overflows the light from that candle. It, it reflects, it reciprocates. See, when the Godhead says, let us make humanity in our image, what God is saying is let's give these beings what we have. Let's let these beings be known and know. Let's let humanity love and be loved. Let's let these beings enjoy and be enjoyed. Let's let humanity take part in the dance that we have going on. Which is the only way that we can truly make sense of what happens in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God, looking over his creation looking over everything that he has made, looking over the Garden of Eden, looking over paradise. God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you'll know that throughout the creation accounts, that as everything is being made, at some point or another, it is described as good. God creates the birds of the air, and it's good. God creates the livestock of the ground and, and is good. God creates the fish of the sea and it is good. God creates the, the stars and the moon and it's declared that it is good. God brings light from the darkness and it is good. God creates humanity, he creates people, and it is very good. That all is good in creation. 
And so it comes as a total shock as we enter into just the second page of the scripture in Genesis chapter two, that we have God standing over all of creation going, look, that there's something here that's not good. There's something here that is, that is deficient. There, there's something here that is, that is missing. Now, I want you for a moment just to think about the implications of that statement. That sometimes, particularly as people of faith, we read the Bible so quickly, and as we read the Bible so quickly, we, we miss some of the greater implications. For a moment, I just want you to ponder the implications that here God is saying that not all is well in Eden. That in paradise, it's not all as it should be. The radical notion that the creation, that when it comes to the creation in Adam, that there is something not good here. Like for a moment, let me just remind you of what the Garden of Eden was all about. Great food. Like Chick-fil-A every day, even on Sunday. Right? I know. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Power. I mean, we don't quite, we're not quite able to grasp the power in the Garden of Eden. But what we do know is that humanity had dominion over all of the earth. Again, we're not sure exactly what that means, but I'm pretty sure that I could place money down on a bet that it doesn't mean wiping your brow of sweat as you wait in line today for a hot dog. Right? Comfort. Pleasure. Beauty. I mean, come on, guys, think about this. Adam had a dog that obeyed. <laughs> Prayer life, perfect. No sin. Walking in perfect union with God. This is Eden as it's described to us in the scriptures. And in all that is there, God says there's still something missing in paradise. Something here is not good. To which we go, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. God, does that mean there's a design flaw? Does that mean that you made a mistake? That does that mean that that as you put together the creation, that, that it didn't come together the way that you intended it to come together? Now, as we read through the rest of Scripture, there is no indication anywhere in Scripture that God made a mistake. So what does this mean? How do we handle this? How do we, how do we see this? Well, the answer is that God says that it's not good for humanity to be alone because humanity was created in the image of someone who's not just a me, but also an us. And because of that, you won't ever be fully happy. You won't ever be fully satisfied until you're not just a me, but also an us. See, Adam was made in the image of a community. And so as he's walking through the garden with all the greatness around him, as he's walking through the garden of loan, God says, look, there's something amiss here. There's something wrong here. There's not something, there's something that's not good here. Adam desperately needs community because he was made in the image of one who is community. Like this is a pretty simple idea and yet it is hugely, hugely important. That God refers to his pluralness in Genesis chapter one as he creates us because he made us for community. He made us not just in the image of a he or a me, but he made us in the image of a us. And therefore, come on, therefore, we will never truly know ourselves. That we will never truly know what happiness is. That we will never truly know what satisfaction is. That we will always be lacking in this life. If I'm only a me, we need an us. 
Listen, when it comes to the scriptures, very clearly from the very first page of scripture, personal relationships are the essence of what it means to be human. That personal relationships are the very essence, is the very essence of what it means to be human. So much so that the implication of God saying that it is not good in paradise for man to be alone means that God created this so deeply within us that not even he himself can satisfy the human relationship that we need. That is a deep theological thought. That is a heavy reality. That God made us in the image of an us. And paradise wasn't paradise without others. Paradise wasn't paradise without friendship. That personal relationships are the essence of what it means to be human. Which flies in the face of what culture teaches us, isn't it? The modern culture says, you want to experience paradise? You want to experience the Eden life? You want to experience material wealth and success and, and you, know, you know, comfort and pleasure and all of the things that, that make up paradise. You want to do that? Then here's how you need to do it. Here's how you need to live your life. Put all of your relationships on the back burner. Chase career. Move wherever you need to be. Be as cutthroat as you have to be in this world. Step on whoever you need to step on in order to get where you want to go. Make all the money that you can. And then if you're willing to make that sacrifice then you'll experience paradise. And the Bible comes along and says, nope, that ain't it. You can have all the power, the material things, the success, the beauty, but if you don't have friendships in your life, you don't have paradise. Not even in the actual Garden of Eden was paradise paradise without friends. And honestly, our culture knows this. I don't know if you saw the movie Air. It's the story of Michael Jordan and Nike. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. But there's a character in it. His name is David Falk. He's one of the powerful agents in the NBA. And during the course of the movie, he has this quote where he says, I don't have friends, I have clients. And at the end of the movie, the movie kind of pokes fun at David Falk. He has all the power, all the success, all the monetary riches that one could imagine. And he's there, do you remember, sitting at a table eating dinner all by himself. The Bible is flashing big red lights and says, don't think for a moment, don't think for a moment that you can build a life of satisfaction, a life of happiness that doesn't put personal relationships as a high priority. It's why the philosophers and the theologians through the years have said things, have said things like this. The well-being and happiness of society is, is friendship. It's the highest happiness of all moral agents. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great American pastors. Back to Augustine. In this world, two things are essential, life and friendship. Both should be highly prized, and we must not undervalue them. John Newton, I think to a feeling mind, there's no temporal pleasure equal to the pleasure of friendship. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me, it is the chief happiness of life. That personal relationships are the essence of what it means to be human. But living in this culture, that's not what you hear. When it comes to our culture, the way that culture views relationships is, is you come into relationships, you, you find your relationships as a means to an end. 
in order to get you ahead, that you, that you choose the people in your life to, to help you take the next step of your career, that you choose the people in your life who affirm the way that you view yourself, that you choose the, the people in your life to help you get where you want to go, that it is a means to an end. Listen, honestly speaking, that works in every other belief system in the world, but it does not work with the belief system of the Bible. That relationships are vital to our existence because you were built in the image of an us. A God of community. That we need friendship because you are inescapably communal. Which leads us to a tension in our life, doesn't it? Because the reality is, is that as we read through Genesis chapter 1 and 2, there's a tension that you feel that you are inescapably communal, and yet at the same time, the relationships and friendships that we have do not bring happiness and satisfaction the way that the Bible promises. That there's something missing in our lives, that there is something that is present in the Garden of Eden that is just feels outside of our grasp in the world in which we live. When Adam is walking in the garden alone. God makes for him another human in the woman Eve. And when Adam sees her for the first time, here's what he says. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh that she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, this word at last here that we have up here is maybe better understood for us as finally. Adam's saying, finally, someone to share Eden with. At last, there is someone to share paradise with. It's a beautiful moment in scripture, isn't it? And yet, we never quite feel satisfied like David is here. I mean, those moments in our life where we'd say, finally, at last, in our relationships is, is something that just feels too far off in the distance. That if we are honest, our relationships, they, they tend to be superficial, don't they? Even at times abusive. That for some of our relationships, even the best ones that we have, they constantly take work because they're constantly breaking down. The reality is, is that in the Garden of Eden, in paradise, they had something that we don't but that we can get in Jesus. The key for us in understanding this is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, when Moses writes, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. The idea of nakedness here is a picture to us of vulnerability. That vulnerability is the key to relationships. That they were naked, that is they were vulnerable and they were unashamed. It means they weren't spinning. It means they weren't trying to control the narrative of what other people saw when they looked at their lives. It means that they didn't need to hide. They weren't afraid of exposure, that they were completely at ease with themselves. They understood who they were, that their identity was secure. And truthfully, when we start to hear that, we go, no, 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 this is what I need. That we all desire, somewhere deep inside us, all of us desire to be fully known, fully loved without the fear of rejection. That we all desire to be fully known and fully loved. That is, to be completely vulnerable with other people in our lives. And as we walk through, we walk with this, that we're unashamed 
with who we are and that there's no fear of rejection in our lives. And the problem is, is that we can't do it. Because the culture says you have to make a choice. You can be loved if you don't fully allow yourself to be known. Or you can be vulnerable and you can walk through this life risking time and time again rejection. Why is that the case? Why is that true of our culture? Why is it that we all feel that? Well, the reason is because we live in a world that's full of sin. And the moment that Adam and Eve chose to be their own gods, they became ashamed and immediately, do you remember, they covered themselves. Now, come on. Whether you believe this story or not, you know that there is something intrinsically true about this. You know that there is something deep inside you. You know that there is something deeply wrong in this world, and so therefore you have to cover. And yet when we open the pages of Scripture, the thing about the Trinity is that they know each other fully. They love each other fully. And they operate in this dance without fear of rejection without fear of rejection. And, and as we see that, as we see that, there's something in us that goes, yeah, that's, that's what I need. And the reason that you need that is because you are created in the image of them. That you desperately need to be known. You desperately need to be loved. I mean, that's why when someone comes up to you and authentically says, man, it's good to see you. It's good to know you. I love you. It's why it, it feels so deeply in our souls. You were made to be known. So how do we get it back? Well, when we view the cross of Jesus, and as Jesus hung on the cross, do you remember that he hung there naked? That is, his clothes were stripped away from him, that we have this scene in the Gospels where the soldiers are actually casting lots. They're, they're gambling for his clothes. That it was the ultimate humiliation in all of life. To, to, be, to be strung up, to be ravaged like that, to be laid bare and rejected. Why did he do it? So that he could bring healing for your sins. See, the nakedness of Jesus, the vulnerability of Jesus on the cross is proof that God has looked into your hearts, knowing all that there is to know about you, and loved you anyways, accepted you anyways. And I'm telling you, if you can take that, if you can take that truth and stuff it into the middle of your life, that kind of love, if you're willing to be vulnerable and, and unashamed and known and loved without fear of rejection before an almighty God where you can say, look, I know that I'm a sinner. I know what I've done. I'm not happy with what I've done. I'm not even, I'm ashamed at times of what I've done. But God, I open myself completely vulnerable to you. If you can live in such a way and be vulnerable and unashamed before God, you can be vulnerable and unashamed before anybody else in this world. And in that moment, when that truth gets so deep inside you, where your identity is secure in who Jesus says you are as a son or daughter of God, completely known, completely loved, not with any fear of rejection, when you get to that point in your life, when your identity is so secure in that moment, you can walk through this life experiencing vulnerability in relationships. Because you're not worried what the other people have to say about you. You already know what the creator is saying. about You don't have to be worried. 
And in that moment, you will experience what it's truly like to be fully known, fully loved. To walk in this world in such a way that brings satisfaction to your soul. See, the key to being human is to be vulnerable. Because that's the way that God created us to be. If you have questions about what that looks like, if you have questions about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, laid bare, naked, vulnerable, to cover your sins, we would love to have that conversation. You can text the name of Jesus to this number, 720-513-1933. Will you pray with us? Father, Lord, we, if we're honest in the depths of our soul, Lord, we, we feel in our culture the lack of satisfaction, the, the lack of happiness that this world can bring. And Lord, sadly, it is the results of the way that we have been taught to live, to put relationship on the back burner, to, to step in this life in such a way that we can do it by ourselves and go at it alone. And Father, if we're honest, all of us have experienced the reality of the epidemic of loneliness. Where we struggle with just wanting more than what we experience in this world. And sadly, Lord, that's, that's just a human thing. That's something Christians and non-Christians that we all experience together. And the reason that we do is, is an indicator that, that something is not right in this world that something is not good, that we, that we have lost something that the Bible points to, that we've lost what it means to live and to love and to dance together. And so, Father, I pray that you would redeem that in our lives, that through your son as he hung naked on the cross, that we would see that what he ultimately did covered us and that through his vulnerability, we can be vulnerable. And as we're vulnerable, that we can come to a space of being fully known, fully loved by you without fear of rejection, to be fully known and fully loved with the people that you place in our life without the fear of rejection, because we know who you are. And so Lord, before we go to a time of communion, I just, just gonna pause for a moment for you to speak into the hearts of people here. us, help us value community the way that you do. Help us see that we are inescapably communal and through it is a life of happiness and success. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Weekly, we come together as a family, as a church to celebrate communion. Remembering the vulnerability, the nakedness of Jesus on the cross where his body was broken so that our shame may be covered 
And so today, unashamedly, and in celebration, we remember the cross. And the blood of Jesus that was spilled is a reminder to us, today we celebrate that through his blood we have life, that through his blood our sins are covered, and that we are free to dance with the creator and with each other. And so today we drink. I'm gonna invite everyone in house to stand online. You can take whatever posture of worship you'd like. If you need prayer, you can make your way back to the back banner to pray online, click the button. But we're gonna sing the great praises to our God, to our King, to our Savior, Jesus, today.